Hey, good morning, everybody. You guys are awake. Good morning, everybody. That's better. Remember, I always tell you guys, you guys are better than first service, right? That's our secret, right? Hey, welcome to Antioch and welcome to Resurgence. Yeah, it was corny, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Whoops, I forgot to tell you guys. Yeah, keep the lie going, okay? Hey, uh, uh, if you're visiting with us today, welcome. You're, you've caught us at a really important time in the life of our church. We're now entering into a season called Resurgence. And Resurgence is not, uh, it's not a necessarily just a, a Sunday morning series. It's, it's not just a cool word or graphic. It has to do with reestablishing a rhythm of life that God has intended for us as followers of Jesus and his church, which is the people collectively, of what our lives are supposed to look like. And so we're entering into the season. Before we jump into kind of the, the teaching portion, which we're going to go through uh, the book of Acts in the New Testament over the next year together. There's a lot to unpack in there. I wanted to kind of get the big picture of what, what is resurgence about. Um, you've heard me say this. Uh, I said it on a video that we sent out to everybody. But this is the most important thing that we're doing in the last five years as a church. Um, it's not to say that somehow we are in error or doing anything wrong, but there has to be this, the concept of resurgence is this, it's rising again to like prominence, activity, and life, the life that God has for us. And so we do that by revisiting the past in the book of Acts to take hold of the future that God has for us. But all of us, even though we may not be in error, we do need course correction. We do need realignment. We do need to kind of get back into what God intended for us. And so we're, that's what this series is about. But there's three elements to it. We'll experience some of that, one of the elements this morning, but there's two other elements other than the, the one of going through Acts, which is kind of, we call it this resurgent rhythm called learn. But there's two other ones that are extremely important. The second one is a resurgent rhythm called live. And that has to do with how God created us not to attend a service, not to just gather on Sunday mornings, but to actually to live in community and relationship with each other. And that's why we have things called community groups. And community groups are a way that we are able to live out the things that we learn on Sunday morning and live out that in relationship and support of each other, but also in living in mission in our city. And so import, uh, community groups are essential not only for a church, but for resurgence because after every Sunday we go through whatever portion of the book of Acts we're going through, we are going to digest that in our community groups. That means that we're going to unpack what we're learning and what that actually means for the way we live our life, not necessarily specifically in detail in this place, but during the week when meeting community groups. If you're not in a community group, you need to be in one. Uh, John mentioned earlier, there's one of the booths out there is community groups. You need to get into it. And because we've synchronized all of our community groups, they're all meeting in the same rhythm and digesting the same material over this next year together because it's really important. And then there's a third element or third rhythm, and that is if you, you came in along with all the other pile of stuff on your seat, can you grab this little card that says love on one side, it says space on the other? This rhythm has to do with learning to love our neighbors or love the people around us as a way to open a door for God to, by his love, to reach into the lives of people who don't know him yet. So what we're doing for a nine months of this resurgence process is that each month we're going to focus in on something that we can do in our lives to make room for us to connect with people who don't know Jesus and learn to love them. Now, before I explain what th th this month is, the reason we're doing this is that some people, the process that we're going to go through is second nature. They constantly are loving and caring for people who don't know Jesus. They're reaching out in their neighborhood. They're reaching out in their job. But for the rest of us, it takes intention because we like to hang out with people who think like us, act like us, talk like us, and are Christians like us. But God's called us to actually love people who are different than us. And so this is a, a tangible, practical uh, step process that's going to help us to do that. So on the back side, you see it says space. Okay, this month, the month of September, here's what we're doing in this rhythm. We're simply 
asking God what needs to be removed from my schedule so that I can make room for people. Why are we starting with that? Because I've been a pastor long enough that I have heard this excuse, and I know I've said it myself, that when we're confronted with a new opportunity, the first excuse that we give is what? I don't have enough time. And you've heard me say before, that, that is not an issue of your calendar, that is an issue of your values. You and I will always find time for what's important. How many know that's true? Whatever you want to do, you will do. You'll make room to do it. So what we're doing is we're, what could be more important than opening the door for God's grace and mercy to flow through you to love somebody so they can discover who Jesus is? That's the most important thing in our life. And so this month, just look at your calendar, look at your weekly rhythm and say, okay, God, what needs to be adjusted or removed in my schedule to make room so when I do connect with somebody, I have time and space in my schedule to invite them into relationships. So this month is space. You'll see each month how those unfold. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the first chapter in the book of Acts. So if you're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And so this morning we're going to look at just the first five verses, verses one through five of Acts chapter one. Now before we actually jump into this this morning, what we're going to talk about is understanding that the story that God has unfolded for human history is still unfolding every single day. And we're a part of that story. But this, the focus for us today is realizing that for some of us, we have paused God's story in our life. We've gotten to a certain stage or a certain place, and we've kind of hit the pause button, either intentionally or unintentionally, but never gotten to where God really wants us to be and what it looks like to actually follow Jesus today. So the process that we're going through, we talk about it's revisiting the past to take hold of the future, is going back to the book of Acts and looking at what occurred after Jesus went back to the Father, after his death and resurrection, what did the church look like? What did they do? How did they act? How did they think? Now, removing all the cultural uh, layers and the historical er layers, what our, our question is, God, what does this authentically look like for Antioch today to be the church that you desire, the church that you purposed? And so this morning, we're going to talk about the fact that for some of us, we've gotten kind of part one of what it means to follow Jesus, but somewhere in the mix, we hit the pause button and never got to part two. We never got to the next step. So let me, let me kind of explain it this way. So to kind of give you some context in the way that, that, that what we're about to jump into is really we're jumping in kind of halfway through. So when you and I read the Bible, just so you're aware of this, originally when the Bible was written, it didn't have book titles and chapter divisions and verse divisions. We put those in over time so that we could access the scriptures more easily to find out different verses and passages of scripture. And so when Acts was written, you have to understand that Acts is actually a part of another book. It's actually a part of Luke. It's two books in one. It's Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and then it's the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, or some call it. And so what happens is you and I have to understand that these things work in tandem. Part one is Luke, or all of the Gospels, which is the story of Jesus' life, his death, his birth, his resurrection, what it means to follow him, all that's laid out in the Gospels. And we love the Gospels, but what happens when you get to the end of the Gospels, that's just kind of part one, because part two kicks in in the book of Acts, which is part two of Luke's writings, to a guy named Theophilus. In fact, listen to what Luke says way back at the beginning of Luke. You don't have to turn there, but he's referring to the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He says this. He goes, I did all this writing an orderly account for you that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been you've been taught. So he's saying to this guy named Theophilus, listen, I am recording all this so that everything that you've heard, I'm going to verify is true. But it's all together, Luke and Acts combined. So we're jumping into Acts because this is the part of the story that we have the most difficulty with. 
We love the Gospels. In fact, the Gospels are probably the most read and the most studied books in the entire Bible in the church. If you go to any church in America, good chance you're going to end up in one of the four Gospels. That's great. The problem is we get stuck in the Gospels and don't realize there's part two. And here's the reason that we struggle with it, and we'll talk a little bit about this today. When you get to the book of Acts, Jesus has now basically handed the baton to his followers. That's us. And now he says, you're going to now live out what I established, the kingdom of God on the earth, and it's going to look like this. And when you read through the book of Acts, if you've just read it through the first time, you're like, you know, if I'm going to be honest with you, it just gets kind of weird. Some strange stuff happens. I mean, people are in a prayer meeting, and fire comes into the room, and like tongues of fire comes down on it, and they start speaking languages they don't understand. Anybody want to admit that's a little strange? Have you guys not read it yet? It is, it's a little strange. But it's not strange in that it's somehow weird, because one thing that you'll understand, especially when we go through this series, people are weird, but God isn't. Okay? Our response to God sometimes is a, is a bit strange, and we blame our strangeness on God. God is never weird. God is always in order, but understand that our response could be that way. So in saying this, what we have to understand, it's kind of like this. It's like, you, ever, you know, you know when, when movies come out and there's like a blockbuster, a movie comes out, like when Star Wars came out and, you know, any big blockbusters, and after you see it, you ask this question, when's the sequel, right? When's part two and now when's part six and part eight and part 20, right, with movies? But we're always looking forward to the sequel. Well, here's the thing. So many times what happens with a movie, you've seen this happen. The first movie is outstanding. It's great. You watch it a hundred times. You memorize the lines, and you can't wait for the second movie to come out. And the sequel comes out, and you sit down, and you watch it, and you're like, ah, I think I like the first movie better. Anybody, you know what I'm talking about? And, and, and it really, because sometimes, like, the plot, as it unfolds, you're like, I don't get it. It's like the Matrix trilogy. The first movie made sense. Don't see the second two, because they just got weird. And you're like, and so we love the blockbuster, but we don't know what to do with the sequel. And sadly, in the church, you know what we've done with the book of Acts? It's the bad sequel. I don't get it. So I read it, but I kind of say this. Yeah, you know, that was great for them 2,000 years ago. That was that kind of thing. But God doesn't really do that anymore today. That was for their time. But this is different. God doesn't work that way anymore. And so then we can just write the whole book off as though it really doesn't apply to our lives. Here's the challenge with that. You won't find anything in the scriptures to tell you that that's true. You won't. It is the story of God unfolding in human history. And it starts, obviously, way back at the beginning of time and flows through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And we don't, get the ch we don't have the privilege or the responsibility or the authority to say to God, oh, I'm just going to pause it here. No, God wants to unpause our story so that we get to part two. Now, as we walk through this, I want you to hear me, okay? Because in our church, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit because guess what? He's laced throughout the book of Acts and throughout the experience of what it means to follow Jesus. So some, some, some things to qualify. As we walk through this journey, we are not talking, for some of you here in the church, you'll understand, we're not talking about Pentecostalism, okay, which is a, a certain segment of the church which would embrace the fact that the Holy Spirit works today. He empowers people. He gives them gifts. We are talking about normal Christianity. I want you to hear me. Okay, God never meant there to be evangelical, non-evangelical, Pentecostal, non-Pentecostal. Those are all our human terms. This is just, let's look at what the book of Acts says, and let's follow it. Can we agree to that? The reason I say that is because in our church, I've had personal conversations. We have people who have never been a part of a Pentecostal experience. In fact, they've been a part of places which, which say, if you experience the power of the Holy Spirit or get filled with the Spirit or you speak in tongues and do things that Pentecostals do, you're full of the devil and you're going to hell. 
We have people in our church who look at our experience at Antioch and they say, you know what, you're not Pentecostal enough. People need to be falling down on the ground every Sunday and everybody needs to be speaking in tongues and it needs to be mass chaos. You're not Pentecostal enough. We have, that's the range of people that go to Antioch. And I get the joy of trying to figure out how to bring clarity to that. (laughs) I say that because I need you to listen to me as we walk through this journey. You're gonna be challenged no matter what camp you sit in right now. Because God is going to challenge your extremism and God is going to challenge your apathy. Because when you get confronted by the scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit, God will always tweak you. He will. If you're not getting turned and tweaked and pressed, then you're not listening to God. Because you and I, if we're not, that means that we've got all the answers. And if we got all the answers, guess who we are? We're God. And the last time I checked, none of us are God. So as we go through this, you and I have to have to take that kind of that posture, okay? God's going to change and challenge some things about my life. And so as we jump into this, it's almost like some of us, you're paused. It's like, you, you know, we all have uh, DVRs or a Blu-ray player, and you pause. And when you pause something, what happens is you can see where you've been. Like, I've watched 25 minutes of the show. There's 35 minutes left. But you're paused, and it shows you where you are. But you can't move forward into what you haven't seen until you do what? Unpause the story. And that's what we have to start with today. It's about how do we unpause the story. So let me read verses 1 through 5 of Acts chapter 1, and then we'll walk through this together. So Luke writes this. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, so he's referring to the Gospel of Luke, I uh, have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we'll just pause there, and we'll look at these these verses today. So what I want to talk about is from Luke's first five verses How do you and I move from part one to part two, from being paused to being unpaused so that we can move into what God has for us? Five things that that are in the story that you and I should look at. First thing, look at verse one. We We unpause this story that's unfolding for us by remembering there is more to the story. There's more to the story. So what is, what does Luke say in verse one? He says, in my first book, he said, what did he deal with in his first book? I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That word began is pretty important, isn't it? Which means he's not through. He began to do and to teach. There's things that he's doing, and so now there's still more going on. It's not, it isn't, just because Jesus went back to the Father doesn't mean it ends. In fact, listen to the very words of Jesus of what he says to us, what he said to his original disciples 2,000 years, and he says to us. He says this in John chapter 14, verse 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I did and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Just let that settle in for a moment. Have you, anybody read the Gospels before? Okay, anybody read Jesus, like, healing a blind person? Giving, giving the person who can't walk the capacity to walk? Raising somebody from the dead? I mean, we could go on and on. We've all heard those. And then Jesus says, oh yeah, you've seen all me do, do all these things, all these works? You will do even greater things than I've done. Why? And we're going to get to it because he's going to send his spirit to empower us to do that. Why is that important? Because Luke wrote about what Jesus began to do, which means there's more to the story. 
There's more to this story than maybe we have understood or maybe that we've experienced and we've, we've gotten stuck somewhere and we've never gotten to the good stuff. We've never gotten to where God wants us to experience what he wants us to experience. So let me put it this way. So this, maybe you can kind of get it in this, this context. So let's say tomorrow you decide to take a day off work. You're going to take your friends or you're going to take your family. You're going to go to Disneyland. You bought the tickets. Your kids are excited. You get up early and you head down and you fight the traffic through L.A. You get down to Anaheim. You get into the parking structure. Who knows, you, you park in Mickey Mouse section or Donald Duck or wherever you park. You get on the tram. You're all excited. You're pumped. You get there and then they drop you off right by, by downtown Disney and then the entrance to California Adventure and Disneyland. And you're so pumped, you're excited, you get off the, the tram and then you walk right into a restaurant in downtown Disney because you're hungry. You're like, well, let's, let's eat some breakfast. So you start eating and then you realize there's some shops and so you go and do some shopping and then you get hungry again and then you eat again and then you do some more shopping. And before you know it, all day long, you're eating and shopping, eating and shopping. And before you know it, the sun goes down and everything starts to close down and you get back on the tram and you go back to your car and you drive back home and you think, that was an amazing day. <laughs> and then you go to work the next day and some of your friends at work say, did you go to Disneyland? I'm like, yeah, it was amazing. Like, did you go on Space Mountain? And you're like, what's Space Mountain? Like, Space Mountain, you know, dark roller coaster, you're in space, really, no. Well, well, you had, did you go on the Matterhorn? I mean, you can see it from the freeway. You could, I mean, it's been there forever, right? They're like, what Matterhorn? Did you ever make it to Fantasyland, like Tomorrowland? And like, no, we did some shopping, we ate some food, and we had a fun time. Would your friend look at you like you're absolutely ridiculous and lost your mind? Why? Because you went to Disneyland and you never went in. You hung out in downtown Disney. Maybe you walked into between the two parks, but you never went in and rode any ride, which is the whole reason you go to Disneyland. That's our faith. We study the scriptures. We know about Jesus. We know about his teachings. We understand our salvation and we confess our sin and we turn our lives over to Jesus. And then he says, oh, there's part two. I want to fill you with my spirit. I want to empower you for my mission. You're like, um, I'll hang out at downtown Disney and be fine. And Jesus says, no, the whole thing is about getting you in. The whole thing is about the experience of what I have for you. You have to unpause your story to be able to get into Disneyland, to get into the purpose of why God has not only saved you for eternity, but saved you for his purpose in the world. So we have to move beyond just the entrance into what God is doing. Second thing, look at verse two. Unpausing the story means remembering that there is an author of the story. So Jesus, or Luke writes, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. So who is the writer of human history? It's not us. It's not human beings. It's God. And, and Luke says, listen, Jesus had given commands through the Holy Spirit. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is how you're supposed to live. This is what it's supposed to look like. Because who is writing the story of God today? The Holy Spirit is writing the story of God. We're not the author. We're characters. We're in the plot. We're in the story. But we're not the authors. Why is that important? How many times do you and I act like the authors and tell God how to write a story? Every day of our lives with the agendas that we live with. And here's what's important. So the way that this works is the Father sends the Son into the world to, to die for our sins, to live a perfect life, to rise from the dead, to give us forgiveness, to secure our eternity. Jesus does that. But then Jesus, when he goes back to the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit to empower us to now live the life we're supposed to live. That is God 
In three persons, we give it a name. We call it the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but three persons in one Godhead working together to fulfill the purpose of God in the world. But this is what's so important. Listen, we don't write the story. God's already writing the story. We just get to be a part of the story. Why is that important? How many times have you told God what you are going to do and what you're not going to do? And how he's supposed to be this way and not that way? How many times do we try to define God and make him nice and safe and comfortable in a box that we want him to be safe in? Because if he gets outside of that box, it's unpredictable and I'm afraid. We don't get to write the story. We don't get to tell God how to write the story. God's the one who writes the story. In fact, listen to what Paul writes in chapter 8, uh, verse 11 of Romans. The Spirit of God is living in us. Listen to what he says. He says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. So what's going on? Here's the way it works. This is a quick summary of, of Scripture. When you say yes to Jesus and you turn your life over to him because you realize that you're broken and you need, you need the forgiveness of sin and so you surrender your life to him, this, the Bible says that God places his spirit in you as a deposit for the future. It says, I am depositing in you something that will take you into eternity. I'm depositing my spirit in you. But something else happens in part two of the story. The Holy Spirit gets, in a sense, activated and empowers us to now live the way Jesus called us to live. And that's the important thing. Why is that important? Because some of us get stuck in, hey, I got the Spirit living in me, but don't get crazy. I I'm good. I got my salvation. I understand the Gospels, and the Holy Spirit's great. The Book of Acts is weird. I don't really read that. But then you miss the reality of why is the Holy Spirit inside of you? Because there's a moment in your life where God wants to bring to pass the power of the Spirit who lives inside of you. What Paul said, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, get this, is living in you. That should make you slightly excited. It's pretty huge that Jesus rose from the dead. The same power that conquered death is the same spirit that lives in us. Don't you think if that same spirit lives in us, there ought to be power in our lives too? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't get deposited and then go to sleep on us. That's part two of the story. And we're going to get there a little bit further. But you have to realize there's more to the story. And the one who's writing the story is who? The Holy Spirit. So here, I'll give you an al another analogy. Maybe you can grasp it this way. So anybody, any Raiders of the Lost, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, fans? Like, you know, all the Indiana Jones? Okay. I know I'm old by saying that's a great movie. You know, I used to watch movies and think, oh, that came out a few years ago in that time. Like, 20 years went by. It's like a classic, right? So give you a quick summary of the first movie. I won't tell you the whole story because I know some of you still haven't seen it because you don't go see movies. But anyway, so... The whole concept is they're looking for the Ark of the Covenant that's been lost for centuries, right? And so the Nazis are looking for it, Indiana Jones and the Americans are looking for it, so they're trying to find it. Well, they discover that there's, there's kind of like these clues that are given, and one of them is this medallion that has inscriptions on it that shows them where to, to, how, to how tall to, to make a staff and to put that medallion on top of the staff and in this certain room where there's an archaeological dig. When the sun hits that room at a certain time, the sun will, will shine through this crystal and it'll point into this place called the Well of the Souls where they will find the Ark of the Covenant. And if you remember the story, there's, a, there's basically a, an archaeologist who has that medallion and there's a fire that happens and so the medallion's in the middle of the fire and one of the Nazis grabs the medallion and it's so hot that he can't hang on to it but it sears into his palm the side of the medallion with all the markings on it that these instructions. 
So the Nazis think, we don't need the medallion because we got this guy's palm. So they look at the guy's palm, they, they fashion a staff, they make up another medallion with a crystal, and then they put it in that room, and the sun shines, and they go, ah, the well of the souls. And they start digging. There's a problem. Guess who has the real medallion? Indiana Jones. And there's two sides to the medallion. Not one. Because the one side says to go to a certain height, then you flip it over the back side, and it says, actually, you have to take two measurements back, so the staff's actually shorter than you think. So what's happening with the Nazis? They're digging in the wrong place. That's what happens with us. There's got to be more than our experience of behavior modification, church attendance, just, not that it's bad, but just good moral character. People can do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's been proven. There has to be another side to the story. There has to be more, right? Are you guys smelling tri-tip? Are you like, like feeling like I need to get out of here? Pastor John's getting a little too, yeah, I don't know, but stay with me, okay? A couple more things. Moving forward and unpausing the story also means remember the point of the story. Verse three. So Luke goes on, he says, he presented himself, talking about Jesus, alive and speaking about the kingdom of God. So after Jesus rises from the dead, he presents himself to his disciples, which all saw him die. He's alive. Present the word present. It's a very specific word. means he's putting himself on display for people to say, see, I'm alive. I'm alive. And he's doing this. And what is he doing while he's demonstrating that he's alive? He's speaking about the kingdom of God, which is the thing that Jesus came to speak about from the beginning. He came to talk about it, and he came to demonstrate it. And this is where we get confused, because we think that it's all about the church but it's actually all about something bigger than the church. It's bigger. It's the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It's not a country. It's not a location. It's not a geography. It's, it's the reign of God in our lives. It's the authority of Jesus in our lives. And it, it comes when Jesus ushered in the kingdom. This is what's hard for us. We get it in parts. We haven't gotten the whole thing yet. Because we'll get the whole thing when Jesus returns someday, when the kingdom will come in its fullness, and that means there will be no more death or mourning, or sorrow, or pain, because Revelation tells us all of that passes away. Why? Because the kingdom's coming its fullest. But right now, we live with parts of it. We get glimpses of it. That's why you're like, well, that's why when I pray for somebody to be healed, I wish every time I prayed someone would be healed, but sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. Why? Because we're getting glimpses of this is what the fullness of the kingdom will look like someday. Why is that important? Because Jesus is saying, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, it's about the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is not contained by the church. In fact, the church is contained by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is bigger than the church. That God came to establish the kingdom, and part of that is the church. He didn't come to say, hey, I'm going to start a church. Jesus never said that. But the kingdom encompasses the church. Why is this important? How do I, this, we could go on for hours, but how do I identify, what is the kingdom of God? Three simple things. The kingdom of God is where the presence of Jesus is experienced. And what is the presence of Jesus? It's something that is beyond natural. It's supernatural. It's the moment that if you gave your life to Jesus, you felt his presence and you realized your sins were forgiven. That's the kingdom of God. It's the moment where somebody who was blind and now they can see, that's the kingdom of God. But it's the presence. It's what you and I long to experience in worship on a Sunday morning when we know there's something beyond our human voices and human experience. It's something that we can't necessarily articulate and understand, but it's a presence. It's the presence of Jesus in his people. Why? Because his spirit lives in us. That's the kingdom of God. Now, what else is it? It's not only the presence of Jesus, but it's also it's the power that's demonstrated. 
Here's the thing we struggle with. The power of God was not just for the Bible. The power of God is for today. The demonstration of the kingdom is what? The blind see, the lame walk, right? That, that's, the, that's the presence of the kingdom of God. That's the demonstration of power. How in the world does the, wor the world look at the church and say, what else do you guys have that we don't have already? The power of God. Humanity cannot transform itself. It can't heal itself. It can't change itself. It can't reconcile itself. Those are acts of God. That's the power of God. That's the kingdom of God. And that's important for us to know. Why? Because we are part of the kingdom of God. And that is great news for the world because the world is longing for what the kingdom possesses. And we're the ones who are supposed to give it to them. The third thing, and this is the hard one. You know what also identifies the kingdom of God? It's the place where Jesus' authority is obeyed. He's the king. So he's the one that calls the shots. And this is important because how many times, we do this all the time, we customize our faith. We tell Jesus, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm not going to do. And we say, okay, I'm, I'm going to grow because I'm going to do it my way. That's crazy. Jesus is the king. Therefore, when Jesus says, this is what you're supposed to do, what are we supposed to do? Do it. Because he knows better than we do. He is the king. For example, let me just give you a quick analogy. When I was in high school, one of the things I hated the most about basketball was conditioning. I hated it. I loved playing basketball, but I didn't want the pain of conditioning. The first year I played, my high school coach said, listen, the reason we're successful is because we are better conditioned than other teams. I went to a small private school that literally the tallest guy my senior year was six feet tall. That was our center. And we were a bunch of white guys who could not jump and could not run fast. That's, that was our team. He said, the way we win is we outlast people. And that doesn't start when the season starts. He goes, that st starts months before the season. So we had this thing called morning runs that we'd have to go and we'd have to train at the school. And the first year I said, listen, I can't get a ride to school that early. So just tell me, what are the sprints? What, are the, what, are the, what do you have to do in running? And, and I'll do it at home. And he said, you can't do it. I said, well, sure I can. Just tell me how long I have to run and how fast I'm supposed to run, and I'll do it. He goes, no, you just can't do it. I said, I can do it, coach. Just tell me how to do it. He goes, no, you, you can't. You have to be with everybody to do it. I'm like, I can do it on my own. So I'm like, I'm going to do this. I lasted a week. Because when you're running by yourself and trying to customize conditioning that was built for a team, you can't do it. The same thing is true. We don't come along and say to the coach, hey, coach, I have a better training regimen than you do. You're the player. What does the player do? The player does what the coach says because the coach knows better. I'll tell you, the proof is in the pudding. When we got into games and we played teams that were 10 times more talented than we were, and we would beat them because they were gassed in the fourth, qu fourth quarter. But we were not. Why? Because their coach said, this is the way you do it. Why is that important? You know, it's interesting. Even when we push into a season like this, We've already gotten resistance to synchronizing community groups, going through the book of Acts. We have, this is the first Sunday we started, and people are like, ah, no, 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 we shouldn't do it that way. We shouldn't do what? We shouldn't have a rhythm that shows us how to love people around us. We shouldn't meet in community like the early church did, which, by the way, when we get Acts 2, what you see in a community group is what we see in the New Testament. All the things that we're doing are just trying to follow the pattern. People are like, no, 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 that's not how God works. It's not? Now, I'm not saying that Antioch has a sanctified way of discipling people, but we have a way that we feel like we've drawn from the scriptures that is God's, God's conviction for our church that we want to live out. That's why when we talk to people, it's like, hey, we're not trying to force anything on you, but we do say this is the way that God's called us to do it, so why don't you give it a shot? Why don't you show up to the school early and condition with the team before you push back on it and try to do it on your own? Make sense? Okay, for three of you, we'll move on a little bit further. Okay, just a couple more things here. I know the tri-tip smell is probably coming in the back doors right now, but 
Number four, unpausing the story means remember not to assume you know the whole story. One of the greatest dangers we have is that we assume that we know what God is doing and understand everything of what he's doing and we fill in the blanks for him. So Luke goes on in verse four. He says, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. This is what's crazy. So Jesus is saying, get this. Kingdom of God is here. They've seen his miracles. They've watched his resurrection. They're like, have a front row seat. And he's talking about all these great things about the kingdom of God. Can you imagine? They're like, we have the one guy on the planet and all of human history that has risen from the dead. We're ready to go. And he's like, okay, guys, on your mark, get set, uh, wait. They're like, oh, why? Because if you go now, you'll fill in the blanks for yourself and you'll assume the wrong things and you'll get it all wrong. So Jesus is saying, you have to wait. Why? Because you have to wait until the Holy Spirit comes and you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Then you will know how and what to do moving forward. We can't assume that we know. That's why this is what's beautiful. The story of Scripture is complete, but the story of God is not. The Holy Spirit's still writing it today. There's a church planting movement called Acts 29. If you've read the book of Acts, there's only 28 chapters. Why is it called Acts 29? Because they realize there's more to the story. God is still moving. God is still planting churches. God is still saving lives. God is still setting people free. God is still forgiving people. God is still healing people. He's doing all of that stuff. But he says the only way you get to do that stuff is if you just pause for a moment and experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit, then you'll know how and what to do in moving forward. Now, you can all raise your hands for this because all of us could admit, anybody ever made an assumption that was wrong and you made a mistake in the process? We all have. I've got way too many stories, and I tell them a lot. In fact, our staff could tell probably most of my stories about false assumptions, wrong assumptions. But when I was a kid growing up, we used to go to Hume Lake every year for vacation. And so, as I was growing up, I kind of got to know how to get to Hume Lake from Southern California. And so finally, when I was old enough, and uh, uh, my parents had gone up early, and I was going up with some of my friends, and one of my friends was driving, and they, the first question was, well, hey, do we need a map? And I said, no. I said, I've been to Hume Lake dozens of times. I mean, I, I know how to get there. And so we're like, cool. So we hop in the car, and so, you know, we get up over the grapevine. We're down into this big, wide, pardon if you live there or from there, this ugly valley, valley known as the San Joaquin Valley where there's always this haze and it's always hot and it stinks like cows. Anybody relate? My parents live there, by the way. I love them, but I don't love where they live. So we're out of there, we're cruising, and we get off, you know, we take the, the, the branch off the five on the 99, we're cruising along. And I just remember growing up, I think, okay, I remember the turnoff as it's at this, there's a city that starts with a V. And I think, how many cities could start with a V on 99, right? So we're just cruising along, and so we're, we're having a great time. Music's blaring, we're talking, we're having a good time. And, you know, you start to feel like, ah, this feels a little bit longer than when I was younger. That, you know, we're, and so I'm like, well, I'll just keep my eye out, because a V-City's going to come up, and then I'll, we'll be there, and, you know, I know the turns and everything. So all of a sudden, I'm, we're just cruising along, and I, all of a sudden I see this sign that says Fresno City Limits. And those of you who don't know the area, Fresno is 40 miles past Visalia. It's not like an uh, exit past or even 10 miles. It's 40 miles past Visalia, which is the city you're supposed to turn off. And so I said, hey, guys, I said, I don't think coming from the south we're supposed to go through Fresno to get to Hume Lake. They're like, we're not. I'm like, I missed the turnoff. Of course, they weren't very happy. So we turned around. Eventually, we found Visalia. I'm like, that's the V I was looking for. We finally got to Hume Lake hours later. Why? Because I assumed I knew what I didn't know. And here's the danger when it comes to the way God works. When you assume that you know what you don't know, you're in danger of missing out on what God is doing. That's what happens. 
That's what happens when we take the book of Acts and we toss it out because we can't make sense of it. And then what the result is what? Is that we assume we know what God was doing and we've missed the guidebook for it. We've missed the map for it. It's laid out for us. It's there for us. So then there's a final thing. And unpausing the story means this. Remember what is needed to understand the story. So the last verse, this is what Luke records of Jesus' words. He says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what is Jesus saying? What is Luke recording that Jesus is saying? For you to understand the story and to participate in the story, you have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You can't do without him. And, and now, I want, the, the time we just have a few minutes until we conclude, but I want you to hear me clearly on this. Because what I said at our start, the start is that we have such a wide range of experiences when it comes to the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand something, that we are coming into a season that this is not Pastor John's agenda to make Antioch more Pentecostal. It's the last thing, okay? This is our collective experience of walking into the story that God has recorded for 2,000 years ago to say this is what it's supposed to be. This is what it's supposed to look like. So yesterday I was praying for today and praying for this season of life and I'm not one to cry easily but I sobbed that I could not stop crying for probably about five or ten minutes because something hit me that I'd never really thought about before that was so much beyond me. God gave me an understanding of what the season we're walking into. Scripture's inspired by God. The book of Acts is inspired by God. The book of Acts is God's plan A. And he had this plan with Jesus through the Gospels and the power of the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts to advance his mission and purpose in the world from the foundation of the world. Before you and I ever came into existence, God was already unfolding this. And so what we were, what I'm sitting there and praying and I'm just sobbing and realizing that what you and I are entering into as we dive into the book of Acts is not something that we've written or we've concocted. This is what God laid out before everything began. He knew this is what it was going to be. And we get to be a part of that. And when I sat there, I was humbled to think, how dare I for a moment tell God how he writes his story? or critique how it doesn't make sense to me, or it causes concern or fear or confusion to me. I'm supposed to, by the power of the Holy Spirit in me, in humility, say, God, what do you want me to understand about what my story is supposed to look like in light of your story? That's our responsibility. And I say that because as we enter into this season, you need to understand there's going to be resistance to what God wants to do in our lives. And the resistance comes from somebody who doesn't want us to go through this journey together. Who do you think that is? It's the enemy. Why would he want a group of people to find out what God's pr purpose was for the church 2,000 years ago? Because it might mess up his plan. And I need to, you need to understand, it's already, we're already getting pushback. But I hear, this is, this is some things we're going to pray in a moment, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk about those in a moment. So two things that I think the way that I've watched the enemy already in the last month work in our own people about this process, about what God wants to do. Hear me, I'm not, I'm not going after any individual. I'm not trying to uncover anybody, but I have, through prayer and through dreams that God has given people, the enemy's getting stirred up because we're heading in a direction we believe God wants us to go. Now, I'm not a pastor that thinks there's a demon behind every bush, but there is a definite, there's an enemy of your soul, and he has demonic powers that push back against what God wants to do. And guess what? We're pushing in. 
So some of you are already freaked out. You're like, what kind of church did I walk into this morning, right? <laughs> but this is what I want you to understand. This is really important because this is what Jesus said. Okay, Jesus says you understand that John's baptism was a baptism by water with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In order for you and I to get the whole story, you got part one is water baptism, part two is spirit baptism. To get the story, you have to have both. Hear me on this. So you think, well, I've never been filled with the Spirit. Does that mean I'm not saved? Absolutely not. I didn't say that. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And anyone ever tells you if you haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not saved, doesn't know their Bible. But the Holy Spirit still wants to activate inside of you. He wants to empower you. So here's the comparison that Jesus makes in this one verse. Water baptism is what? It is external. It is a decision you and I make to identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus by going into water and being immersed in water as a symbol, an outward symbol that says, I'm identifying with Jesus in death, with his death, but I'm being raised to life as Jesus was. It's this outward sign. It's this, this thing that you're saying, God is doing something inside me, but it's an external thing. You get wet. It's kind of really peculiar. It's interesting. Talk about weird. What organizations ask you to get in, in your bathing suit and stand in front of a bunch of strangers and get wet? That's kind of weird. But why is that? Because it's the symbol of what it says. I am dying, and I am being raised to life. So that's water baptism. What is spirit baptism? Spirit baptism is internal. It's inside. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and now there's this surrender. You finally give yourself fully to God's work, and now you release yourself to be empowered by the Holy Spirit who gives you gifts and gives you power to do what you can't do on your own. And every single person who follows Jesus has to have the power of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism is about repentance. It's a marker in time. It's a day and a time that says, I now belong to Jesus, and now I've turned my back on the way I used to live, and now I'm moving forward in what Jesus has for me. It's that turning in your life. It's that outward sign. So if water baptism is repentance, what is spirit baptism? It's power. It's equipment. It's what you and I need to be what Jesus called us to be. You have to have the Holy Spirit actively working in your life and empowering you to be who Jesus wants you to be. Water baptism is about what? It's about admission. It's about coming into God's family. It's the sign that now I belong to God's family. What is spirit baptism? It's commission. It's now I have a purpose for my life. And your purpose for your life it may look like your career or how you've been creatively gifted and all those things, but the purpose of your life is to glorify God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, regardless of what you do for a living or where you live or the car that you drive. That's the purpose of every person who gives their life to Jesus. Because when you give your life to Jesus, it's not yours anymore. It's God's, and he gives us the power for that. The last thing is that water baptism is part one. Spirit baptism is what? Part two. Then let me close with this. Why are we doing this? We will get to this in the weeks to come. But Jesus gives his spirit to his followers because he says, I have a mission. And that mission is driven by his love for the world, that he cares deeply that every person would have an opportunity to come to know him and experience the full forgiveness and reconciliation that God desires for them, that brings them back into relationship with God, secures their eternity, and allows them to live the, God, the life that God purposed them to live. This is what this is about. But here's the challenge that you and I face, is that when it comes to pushing forward into what God has for us, there's something that is common to all of us that all of us experience. 
It's called fear. We're afraid. We're afraid of what's different. We're afraid of what we can't control. We're afraid of, of actually surrendering and letting God begin to tell us what he wants from us because we like God in a box. We don't like God outside our boundaries. And God wants to do more than you and I can contain, more than we can fathom, more than we can understand, more than we can manufacture, more than we can work out on our own. God wants to do more. And here's what's driving this for me. That the God of the universe would ordain what the church is supposed to look like before the beginning of time for us to live out because he loves people. So God wanting to fill me with his spirit and challenge my fears and my control mechanisms because he loves people. Who am I to get in the way of what God wants to fulfill in the world? The first church turned the world upside down. Even the Roman, most powerful Roman Empire could not stop the church. Why? Because the church was filled with the Holy Spirit and power, and people died for the sake of Christ, but they were empowered by the Spirit. So people were raised from the dead. Blind people could see. Lame could walk. People were transformed. Why? Because they lived under the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just be honest with you. I'm a pastor, and I'm admitting guilt to this. I look at the church in America, and we're devoid of power. Character's not enough. You can be the best person ever, and that's wonderful. That's a byproduct of knowing Jesus. But your character is not going to transform a human soul. That is a work of God alone. And we need his power. You, some of us, we need God's power to simply walk across the street and talk to our neighbor because we're scared to death. I don't talk to strangers. Get over yourself. The stranger across the street's going to hell apart from your hand in their life. And God's placed you there because he loves them. And he loves you, but he's saying it's time for a course correction. Your life is not about you anymore. It's about what I want to accomplish through you. And by the way, every person who ever followed Jesus and surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit never regretted it. Never. When we get to heaven someday, you can go talk to Paul. You can talk to Peter. You can talk to people who lost their lives for Jesus, and they will say the same thing. I don't regret it for a moment. I don't look back and question the suffering I went through. Why? Because it was all worth it. Because I stand before Jesus, the God of the universe, and it's all about his glory. And I look around the throne room of heaven, and I can name names of people who are standing in God's presence forever because I sacrificed and it was filled with the Holy Spirit and fulfilled his mission. This is the church. This is what the world needs. And this is what God's calling Antioch to. So don't think, oh man, Pastor John, you had too much coffee. No, I didn't. And hear me, this is not out of angst or anger towards anybody. God wants to unleash us as his church. He wants to unleash you. He wants to feel the power of his spirit that not only commissions you to his mission, but empowers you to see your life change. How long have you been the same? I know for me, there's areas of my life, I'm tired of that. I need God's power to transform my life. So God, I'll surrender to you. I'll surrender to you. So would you close your eyes? We're going to conclude in prayer, and then we'll, we'll give you some instructions as we head out for, for lunch. But as I pray, I'm going to pray specifically for fear, that God would confront our fear. But I want you to know that there, there are two things I believe the Lord identified to me about the way the enemy wants to keep us from moving forward. They come in two forms. These are the weapons I think he's using right now to try to keep us from what God has. The first one comes in the form of a thing called apathy. And apathy says this, I'm going to do nothing. 
Apathy says, I've been a Christian for a long time. It's been good enough for me. I've been a part of this church a long time. I have relationships and friendships here. I like Antioch, but boy, I'm not here for all of that stuff. So I'm just going to be the same. I'm just going to kind of do the thing I've always done because it's good enough for me. And so that's apathy, which says, I choose to do nothing. And then there's a second thing. It's in the form of resistance, where apathy says, I choose to do nothing. Resistance says, I'm not going to do that. I refuse to do that. I don't think that's what God wants. I don't think that's what I'm supposed to do. And deep down inside, you know that the pushback that you're having has more to do with your resistance, not that it's something that is wrong or not where God wants you to go. And so you resist. And if you and I respond with apathy and respond with resistance, and this isn't resistance to Pastor John or Antioch. This is when God begins to encounter and you resist that. Guess what? Who's, who's celebrating that moment? It isn't Jesus. It's the enemy. Because the enemy's primary way he works in the church is to get us to do nothing. If we do nothing, he wins. But if we surrender and we watch God work, Jesus wins, the kingdom wins, we win, the world wins, and in the end, Jesus is glorified. So Lord Jesus, as we endeavor to set out on this journey together, we don't want to put you in a box, we don't want to control you, but we also know, God, that you are not about doing weird things to show your power. You're about doing powerful things to show your nature and your love and your mercy and your forgiveness and your healing power in us. So Lord, as we step into this and, and we look forward to experience the fullness of your Holy Spirit, I pray right now, Lord, that you would come and you would calm our fears about the unknown. That as we lay those things down, Lord, that you as well, if we are feeling a sense of apathy, Lord, would you stir up your spirit inside of us. And Lord, if we are feeling resistance, would you stir up your spirit inside of us? And, and I'm going to conclude with this, just in, I'm going to interrupt my prayer, but with your eyes closed, you may be here today, and if you're honest, you're thinking, I don't even know what I walked into today. In fact, I got dragged to church, and maybe I've been attending for a little while, but I, I'm not even sure who Jesus is, let alone this Holy Spirit and what this is all about. But if that's you this morning, part one for you, you may be at part one, and that is that Jesus has brought you here because he's drawing you to know him. He's drawing you to realize that he has given his life. He died because of your sin and brokenness and says to you, if you will surrender your life, including your sin and your brokenness to me, he took it on the cross, which was the penalty that we deserved. He died for that, taking it away from us so that we're no longer guilty of that. But then he rose from the dead to show that the greatest human barrier we face, death, no longer is a barrier to us. And if that is something you haven't experienced, I'm going to pray in a moment that you can experience that today. You can say yes to Jesus and then be ready that he wants to empower you and give you power by his Holy Spirit. So Jesus, right now, those here that maybe they don't know you, Jesus, would you come? I know that your spirit works on us before he works in us. And you may be working on people right now. So Lord, would you do that? Would you open hearts and minds to receive you into their life, to experience your forgiveness and your transforming work so that their lives can be different? And for all of us, Lord, we want to turn the page. We want the other side of the medallion. We want to enter into Disneyland. We want to get to the good stuff. We want to get into where your spirit works in us and we become the people and the church that you've always desired for us to be. So Jesus, would you accomplish your purpose in us as we walk out resurgence together in your name.